Good morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn me for the last time, at least officially, to the book of Jude, as we are concluding our time in Jude this morning, a journey that we started, I didn't actually look at the exact date, I think it was uh, in June, if I'm not mistaken, uh, this is week 13 of walking through this short letter, could have spent more time on it, right? But, uh, but here we are, we got 13 weeks into Jude, and it's been I uh, don't know for you, but for me, it's been a great book. I have thoroughly enjoyed our time in Jude. I've enjoyed our discussions and community group uh, in Jude. And it's been uh, been good for me and for my soul, my walk with the Lord, and just uh, even understanding of uh, this last uh, part of the New Testament. And so it's been, uh, it's been good. And so looking forward to uh, what's next. We're going to kind of take a break from uh, books for the rest of the year. And I have, a, have some plans laid out. And then in January... Uh, come back and begin um, what's next and so we have some thoughts and so y'all pray for us as we um, figure out where we're going I said it again this morning to our guys and I'm mostly serious we could just have a spinning wheel uh, in one of the uh, somewhere that we just spin to see what book is next because I'm pretty sure there's not a bad book of the Bible Um, and so but looking forward to where the Lord's going to lead us uh, but for the sake of those who are just with us that haven't been far as long, I'm not going to recap all of Jude, uh, but just suffice it to say, it's been a letter uh, that has, uh, it is unlike most letters in Scripture, Jude finishes this morning in the way that he wanted to start. And so as we go back to Jude uh, 1 and 2, we see that uh, he was just glorifying God and it just, it was overflowing from Jude that he wanted to speak to the riches of God because he actually says that in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager, not just eager, but very eager to write to you about our common salvation. And as we're going to, he's going to come back to that this morning. If you remember from a few months ago, we said this was kind of a glory um, sandwich, if you will. It was um, our it starts with this this idea, this desire, this eagerness to to look to the Lord and rejoice in who He is and what He's done and this common salvation we have. And at the end of it, where we find ourselves this morning in verse 24 and 25, He returns to that. He returns to this beautiful, what we call this doxology, this beautiful praise to our wonderful God. But in the midst of that, he said, although I wanted to do that, instead I have to write to you to appeal to contend for the faith because these people have crept into the church to do damage to the church. These false teachers, uh, these apostates, these who claim to be the Lord's, but indeed they are not. And so that's what the book of Jude, this short letter has been about, is Jude addressing these false teachers, these false leaders, these apostates, these false believers who've crept in the church and how we are to deal with those and how we, to, how we are to identify uh, those individuals. And then towards the end here, starting in verse uh, about 18 or 19, uh, really in verse 20, uh, where then he kind of speaks to the church and how we are called to build ourselves up in the faith and uh, kind of speaks to the church and how we are to walk in the Lord. And uh, that as we build our faith up, we do so by, by building ourselves up, by praying in the Spirit and waiting on the mercy of God. And then last week we turned our attention to the mercy of God uh, and, how, uh, and how that uh, intersects in the lives of the believer in every absolute way. And so all that to say, that's our... Um, two-minute uh, recap of Jude, 
And so now this morning we turn our attention to the end, to this doxology. And so let us read, if you will, Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for a chance again to gather as your people. Thank you for an opportunity to worship, Lord, in so many different ways. You, our glorious God. And we thank you now as we come to this text, Lord. We thank you for this time that we've had in Jude and for the way that you've used it in our lives, in our hearts, and our spirits, Lord. And now as we uh, conclude this book, as we walk through these last couple of verses, as we ask that you do every week, Lord, would you speak to us by your Spirit and for the glory of Christ. In his name we do pray. Amen. And so, if you were to take these two verses, uh, you could distill them down into really one sentence because it, the, the subject's kind of there in the, the beginning, the verb's there in the end, and just a whole lot of things are right there in the middle. You can really distill it down uh, to this. You could distill it down to, to God be the glory. Uh, specifically, now to Him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And so there's a whole lot of... Um, a lot of other stuff that goes with that, and so we're going to unpack that this morning. But in this doxology, that's as simple as that. To God be the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Uh, doxology is common in, uh, in the New Testament letters especially, but even in, uh, in Psalms they are common. And so oftentimes they end a book, they end this letter with, uh, with just praising the Lord, with praising God, with bringing glory to His name. Um, because ultimately, that, is, that should be the song of all of our lives, right? To bring glory to God. That should be the desire of every believer, to live for the glory of God. So in the midst of this, let us look at kind of some things that Jude says. If, uh, to be specific, I believe that Jude points to three truths here, three more truths before he wraps up his book. I don't know if you can call this one of his triads, but it's one of, and we'll get to his last triad here at the very end. Uh, that's just his group of three that he's intentional with. But I believe there are three things that he's pointing here, uh, and uh, right before he puts his quill down, if you will. And the first is found there in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So we see the first one there, that he's able to keep us from stumbling. And then secondly, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And third there is found in verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. So the first of his three points is this, that God keeps us from stumbling. God keeps us from stumbling. Now to Him, to God, to Christ, through the Spirit, now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling now if you've been with us since the beginning of jude this is not the first time that we encounter jude saying that god is able he starts it in the very beginning and there in verse uh, one 
where he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Uh, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So we see from the very beginning, this uh, what Jude puts forth is that we are kept for God. We see here at the end, we are kept by God. And we see in the middle there in verse 21, with this call to keep ourselves in the love of God. So there is this picture, uh, not necessarily this tension, if you will, but there is this picture of both God keeping his people and people keeping themselves the love of God. And so there uh, is this role that we both have to play. And this morning, he returns to he who is able to keep. Because are we able to keep ourselves in the love of God perfectly? Are we able to keep ourselves uh, in the Lord and to the, to the end? Absolutely not. It is God who is able to keep His people. God keeps us from stumbling. And we'll get here a little bit to kind of what exactly what sometimes we think this means and it doesn't and we'll get to kind of a big picture of it but specifically what jude has in mind here when he says that god is able to keep us from stumbling he's specifically saying that god keeps us from falling for false teachers god keeps us god is able to keep us from falling for false teachers jude addresses the uh, obvious immediate question of the text here what if I stumble? What if I fall? What if I lose my step and make fools of us all? Sorry, that's a quote from the possibly greatest Christian rock band in the 1990s. DC Talk. I mean, that's where they got it from. But what if I stumble? This is the question Jude asks. What um, that God keeps us, not a, question, not a question he asks, it's a statement that he makes, that he asserts, that he says with confidence this is true to him, to God who is able to keep us from stumbling, to keep us from falling, specifically for these false teachers. That's what he's been addressing the church, of these false teachers who have crept into the church to lead them away from the true gospel, to lead them away from the true Jesus, to lead them to... All sorts of heresies and all sorts of false teachings. And so God is able to keep us from stumbling. And so this should be a very practical question. If you read through the book of Jude and you read, I mean, just these very clear warnings and these very clear condemnations, these judgments that are pronounced on the false teachers, you should ask the question before you get to verse 24, how do I keep from falling? How do I keep from stumbling? How do I keep, uh, how do I know if I'm being led astray by false teaching? I don't want to be in this group. I would dare say that most do not believe and most would, uh, would reject the notion that they are uh, following a false teacher. They have been blinded. And so how can we keep from stumbling? How do we know if we're following false teaching? How do you know? Some specific questions. How do you know if what you learned in church growing up is faithful and true to the Word of God? How do you know who to trust today amidst an endless supply of sermons and podcasts and preachers and teachings? How do you know what is true and faithful to the Word of God? How do you know if North Hills is rightly dividing the word of truth, how do you know? The simple answer is, or rather a question, who are you trusting? 
Who are we trusting to deliver to us once and for all the truth of God's Word? Who are we really listening for? And that answer is found in John chapter 10. So go with me there real quick. John chapter 10. Believers listen not for the voice of man, but they listen for the voice of God. And John 10, we'll start there in verse 27. Now we'll start in verse 25. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so as you read that, as you listen to that, you hear these, the same tone in Jude. That because of the glory of God, because of His majesty, because of His dominion, because of His power, that no one will snatch them out of their hand. No one ultimately will cause them to truly stumble. No one will cause them to fall if we are listening for the voice of God through ultimately the Spirit. And so let's see how we can listen with spiritual ears. Go into First Thessalonians chapter five. I can't find my books of the Bible this morning. First Thessalonians chapter five, where Paul has a similar benediction here, kind of into this letter of to Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. So how do, we, how do we listen for the voice of God? How do we know for hearing from the Spirit of truth? 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those. And when he does, he goes on to kind of, he's given these, these quick one-liners, if you will, to a degree of how to walk in the Lord. He says, to respect those among you, to esteem those very highly in love, be at peace with those. I urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle and encourage the faint heart. Help the weak, be patient with them all, so that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to, to everyone. Rejoice always, he says. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then in verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So it is the Spirit that we look to. The Spirit of God leads us to all truth. Through the Spirit of God, God keeps us from stumbling. And that is, that is how we as believers, and we say often here, and listen, may we never forget the fundamental difference between believers and unbelievers is the Spirit of God dwells inside of us. And so if the Spirit of God is inside of us, and God's people hear His voice, and they follow Him, and the Spirit of God leads us to truth. 
Not to a truth, not to one or two truths, but to truth. To His truth. Truth is not just an idea or a concept. Truth is a person. It is Christ. And so the Spirit of God leads us to Jesus. The Spirit of God leads us to Christ. And God the Father uses the Spirit to lead us to Christ. And He keeps us from stumbling. But yet we still sin, do we not? And so he's not specifically talking about um, that he keeps us from sinning here. Wouldn't that be nice if through the Spirit of God he kept us from sinning and sin was no longer present in our body? Wouldn't that be nice? I'm going to Romans chapter 7, just in case you think that's the case, and it's not the case. But Romans chapter 7, we'll start there in verse 15. Some of these I'm going to read kind of quick because we've got places to go, things to do, right? Romans 7, 15 says, and this is Paul speaking, and we can find this, uh, this kind of idea and this truth uh, in several places in Scripture, but I think hearing from Paul helps us because I don't think anyone argues that Paul loved the Lord. Paul served the Lord. Paul was an apostle, and he was preaching the gospel, and, he, uh, and God used him in incredible ways in the uh, birth of the church. But here's Paul, this great apostle, Romans seven fifteen. For I do not understand my own actions. Can anyone ever relate to that? As believers, that you just don't understand your own actions, your thoughts, your words. I do, not, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law and that, is, that, is, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. We are not able to carry out even living for the Lord on our own. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find to be a law. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And here he goes in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And so God, in this life, there will, in, the next, in, in eternal life, in eternity, as we are joined to the presence of God, we will be absent from the presence of sin for eternity. And that day is coming for all those who trust the Lord and look to Him. But in this life, we will still stumble. We will still fall as it comes to sin and struggles. But God, it is God, it is His ability that will cause us to stand. It is His ability that will lead us and guide us and ultimately to truth. Believers still sin. We still struggle with sin. We still fight sin. But we must hate sin and make war with sin. But as believers, we know the weight, the shame, and the guilt of sin. So 
as we think about these false believers and these false converts and these false teachers, these apostates in Jude, and we ask ourselves, am I one of those? I think a good litmus question to us is, how do we think about sin? Do we hate sin? Do we, uh, does it detest us? Does it break us? Does it lead us to conviction? Or are we comfortable with it and okay with it and make excuse for it? Believers will struggle, but we will also fight with sin. So here Jude is telling us that God keeps us from stumbling. And yes, He does keep us from stumbling ultimately with false teachers because the Spirit will lead to truth. And that is a, that is a heart-wrenching truth, that, that, that ultimately those who, who turn away from the truth of God's Word and never return reveal they're not really the Lord's. But if they are the Lord's, we, we have confidence that He will bring them back into a right relationship with Him. And then not only does God keep us from apostasy, but He keeps us eternally His. Go me to Romans again real quick. Romans chapter 8. Go a little further than we normally go. But Romans chapter 8 verse 38 and 39. As we are reminded that God keeps us His, not just temporally, but eternally. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Could Paul be any more emphatic? Could it be any more clear that there is nothing that will separate us from the Lord? There's nothing that will separate us from Christ. Nothing, as John says, will snatch us out of His hand. And so God doesn't just keep us uh, secure as temporal believers, but He keeps us secure eternally. And it is not up to us to keep ourselves in the faith it is God that does that work. And then you see over in 1 John, just turn a couple books over. 1 John, one verse there in chapter 2, verse 19. He says, they, and he's speaking of these antichrists, these who uh, will continue to come, these who are not of the Lord. But it says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. And so we see this in Jude. There are so many who claim to be of the Lord and they claim to be in the church, but it is made clear at some point that they are not of the Lord. God will keep His people. He is able to keep His people. He's able to keep us from stumbling. He's able to keep us in the truth. So God keeps us from stumbling. Secondly, God presents us blameless. Let's just read verse 24 again. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Now I'm just going to be honest with you, church. If you... If you can read that or hear that and not be stirred up inside, you're likely not saved. 
Can I be clear with you? The fact that God is not only able to keep us from stumbling, but what is it says that He does? He presents us blameless. He presents us blameless. You go up a first couple of verses earlier where it talks about being stained. It talks about these people, these who have crept in, that even their garment are stained by the flesh. And this language there that we uh, briefly referenced last week is just this picture of just being horribly soiled cloth. But here Jude says, God presents us blameless. He should, right? We're good people. He should, right? We are Southerners. We are good-willed folks. We are gentlemen and ladies. And hopefully you laugh. And hopefully you know that is ridiculous. That we are sinful people. That all we truly deserve is death, hell, and the grave. And we deserve it instantly. We don't deserve it as we get older and get worse and things become known of us. We deserve it with the first breath we take. We are born guilty people. As unto the Lord. But those who look to Christ, those who are His, those who are His sheep, it says, who hear His voice, who know His voice, who follow Him, who've done nothing to become His sheep, who've done nothing to become His adopted sons and daughters, what will He do? He will present them blameless. He will present them perfect he will present them spotless he will present them righteous and some would say that language is actually even better translated instead of present to stand so he's able to keep us from stumbling and he stands us up he stands us up perfect and he stands us before the throne of god blameless could you imagine going before the throne of a holy god apart from the righteousness of Christ. We would not stand. We would do far more than stumble. But it is God who not only keeps us from stumbling, God presents us blameless. Go with me to Colossians. First cousin of Ephesians if you will. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So he just described all of us. In case you were thinking he was talking about your neighbor or someone you saw on Facebook this morning or someone you saw on the news, he's talking about us. We were alienated. We were hostile in mind. We are doing evil deeds, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, in order to stand you up, in order to present you what? Holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, and we've walked through that so many times. It's not that if we're good enough to continue in the faith and we find ourselves uh, in the Lord, surely. But if we're surely in the Lord, then we will continue in the faith. We will continue to be stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became 
a minister. This is the heart of the gospel. John chapter 17, verse 20. Because not only does, does God present us blameless, Christ wants us. Christ wants us that He might present us. He says it clearly in His high priestly prayer towards the end. In John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but, I also, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So Jesus is praying for his people, that, they, that we might have unity as he and the Father have unity. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as you and I are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know. Did you hear that from Paul just a moment ago? So that the world may know that the, that the purpose of God is to, the world may, may ultimately see Him for His glory. That the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, his sheep, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. God presents us blameless. Christ desires us. He wants us. Why does he do this? What is the heart of the gospel that the enemies of God have become sons and daughters of God? Because God wants it. If God didn't want it, if God didn't desire it, it would not be. But because God wants it, because of his glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, God sits in the heavens and does as he pleases. And what pleases God is to establish his people. To keep them from stumbling. To save His people. To sustain His people. And to stand His people up as they are presented blameless. As they go from enemies of God to sons and daughters of God. And that is the heart of the Gospel. And because God keeps us from stumbling and because He will present us blameless, it brings us to the third point that June makes in this text. God is to be worshipped. So to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. So He's saying to Him, and He describes who Him is, and He reminds us who God is in relation to what He's done for us. Then in verse 25, to Him to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. So not only is God keeps us from stumbling, not only does He present us blameless, but God is to be worshipped. He is to be worshipped. Jude quickly cites three reasons here that, that God is to be worshipped. 
First, he says that God is the only God, to the only God. Now, for us as believers, as those who've been raised up in church, as those who've been students of Scripture, that for us, that's kind of a, uh, a common thing, right? That God's only one. We don't serve multiple gods. They're, we are not polytheists. But go with me to Isaiah. We don't often make it in, in recent weeks, rather, made it uh, back to the Old Testament as much. But let's go to Isaiah chapter 45. Verse 5 and 6. Isaiah, inspired by the Spirit, reminds us of this wonderful and simple and foundational truth. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising sun and from the west, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. And so we can go through every page of Scripture and be reminded of who God is. But Jude reminds us here first that He is the only God. There is no God besides Him. And as Jude is speaking to a primarily Jewish audience, they understand this. They understand that God is one. That there is no other. And this is the theme we see in the Old Testament. That God judges Israel for over and over again and judges the the, the surrounding nations whenever they turn to other gods. Because all of those are false gods. For He is the Lord. There is no other. God is to be worshipped because He is the only God. And God is to be worshipped because, and it says something, we've been glossed over and, and just it sounds like something we hear and read all the time, but it's actually kind of unique. It's not completely unique, but it is. You don't see it often. It says, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, Almost always we see Savior attached to Christ. But here we're looking at at the Father and saying that He is our Savior. And again, the heart of the Gospel. What is as God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, as the architects of the Gospel? It is His desire to save His people. He is able to do it. He is our Savior. He saves sinners. And more than just saves sinners, He makes sinners into sons and daughters of Him. They will be in His presence, sinless for eternity. God is to be worshipped because He is the only God. He is to be worshipped because He's our Savior. And thirdly, He is to be worshipped because He sent Jesus to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I love how how Jude references Jesus there. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord. And as he's talking to these who've been struggling with false teachers and with heresy and with, uh, with all these who have crept into the church to point them to, uh, to, to everything except Christ. And Jude starts the book off, right? He starts in Jude chapter 1, a servant of Jesus Christ. That is his identity, not as the half-brother of Jesus, not as the brother of the apostle James, but he starts with his identity as a servant of Jesus. 
And so who are we? We're all kind of things, right? We have all kind of titles and roles and responsibilities in our life. We have all kind of jobs. But who are we first and foremost? We are servants of Jesus. And God is to be worshipped because He sent Christ, who is our Savior, who is our Lord, who is the Messiah. And we'll be very intentional with this December to be reminded of His, of his coming as a babe and as His return as a king. But God is to be worshipped. Because He is the only God. He is to be worshipped because He's our Savior. He is to be worshipped because He sent Jesus. Truth in flesh. And to this one God, our Savior, who sent Jesus, Jude says these four words. And this is kind of the, the if you were to distill this verse down, now to Him, now to God be these four things. To God be the glory. To God be the majesty. To God be dominion and authority. Now, he's not saying these things in hopes. He's not saying these as prayers. Okay, God, I hope you get some majesty. God, I hope that you get some dominion. I hope you get some territory in the, the, the hearts of men. I hope you have authority. He's saying these as a matter of fact. That all things happen for the glory of God. If you ever want the simple answer as to why things happen... Here's the simple answer as to why things happen. Because that brought God the most glory. Well, I don't understand. It's okay. That's the truth. Why does anything happen in our life? Why does anything happen in the world around us? Why has anything happened the way it's happened in the history of humanity? Why are things going to continue to fall apart? Why are things going to be good? Why, question mark, anything is because of the glory of God. And so Jude says, now to him who's able, now to him who presents you blameless, to the only God, be glory. All things that God does, simply put, are for his glory and for the good of his people. And how encouraging is that? That you don't have to have a detailed answer on every news event. You don't have to have a detailed answer every time something expected happens in your life. You don't even have to have a detailed answer when something good happens in your life. Sometimes, you know, we get hung up on all the bad, and sometimes the great things happen in our life. Why did this happen to me? I deserve this. For God's glory and for your good. All things happen for the glory of God. God will always receive majesty, for He is majestic. He has the dominion over everything. There is no part of this world. There is no part of history. There is no part of the cosmos that God does not have dominion over. There's no part that He's carved out and said, okay, Satan, you have dominion authority right here. I'll take the rest. Even Satan, whatever power he has, has been granted to him by God. Why does Satan have power and authority in certain places? For the glory of God. It's the answer to every why. For the glory of God. Because God has authority. He is all-powerful. Omnipotent, as we say. Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And he concludes, here's that last triad I mentioned to you. If you're new with us, Jude is full of triads, full of groups of three things that describe something. I've said often he was the first Baptist preacher. He just loved his three points. 
And so here's his last three points. Before, all time, and now, and forever. In case you missed that, that's his way of saying past, present, and future. So this isn't just, God doesn't just get the glory, have majesty, and have dominion and authority in the past. He doesn't just have it now when Jude writes, but forever. Eternity past, in every present, and in every future, God has these things. God is these things. God is able to do these things. And God will present His people blameless before Him. In the past, in the present, in the future, before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. So as we conclude our study of Jude, let us end our time as Jude ended by pouring out great praise, great worship, a life of worship. As we say often, and I was reminded this morning even looking at our handout, if you look at our order of a service, there's one word that follows every single thing that we do. It's worship. And hopefully North Hills, we know this, worship is not music just music we worship through music we worship through the preaching of the word we worship through communion we worship through our gathering worship through gathering growing giving and going we worship as we leave this place we worship in every aspect of our life if we are a believer and so as jude turns his attention to to worshiping and praising god for who he is and what he's done may we live our life as a doxology that we live our life as a living worship service to the Lord. May it be clear in our life that God is one. May it be clear in our life that there is no other God on the throne of our heart. For we, if, we ever, if we are a believer, there is none other. But let us live a life by pouring out great, great praise to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Praise be to God for all that He has done for the good of His people and His great glory. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for this morning. I thank You for a chance to turn to Your Word. I thank You for a chance to be reminded of how absolutely amazing You are and for all that You have done for us and undeserving people. You have made us Your people. You will keep us your people and you will present us as your unblemished people because of Christ. So may that not just change our, our expectation of eternity, but may it change how we live today. And we'd be eager to share that joy with those that you have placed in our life. As we come now, Lord, to the communion table, as we sing again, Lord, as we give, as we leave this place, may everything done be done for your glory. May we respond in faith and obedience to you.